we thought we were in great danger in fact because the war was escalating there was quite a lot of fighting on the ground and then the uh, MiG bombers were around quite frequently they were um, roaring over our heads quite honestly in the clinic every day and um, there was quite a lot of bombing in areas surrounding us one day we listened to a bombing raid on a town which is uh, just about three or four hours walk from our clinic and uh, there was a um, very very great loss of death and injury in that place and the people from that place from Housian were brought to our clinic for treatment the day following that event and the second day after it it was um, a case that there were not enough people left alive to carry the injured immediately and they had to wait for friends and relatives to come in from the villages and from the mountains and to search out who was remaining and to bring people for care. Um, people had very great blast injuries. Um, they had, you know, um, limbs partially uh, dismembered. Uh, as well as that, we will never, ever, as long as we live, forget the smell of the people's wounds that came from that bombing. Um, and we were told afterwards that this was due to that um, napalm gas that is a chemical weapon. And uh, it was still burning into their wounds two days later. We could, we could smell a burning gas kind of smell. And uh, it, it was just, just terrible. In October 1984, television broke the story of Ethiopia's forgotten famine. Michael Burke's report stirred Bob Geldof to live aid and sent a small community of Irish nuns into the unknown. The Six O'Clock News from the BBC with Sue Lawley and Nicholas Witchell. Good evening. The headlines at six o'clock on the day when the scale of famine and death in Africa's worst drought became clear for the first time. We have a special report from Ethiopia where hundreds of thousands of people are starving to death. Well, for me, Ethiopia um, came on the map for me on a Sunday evening in October, late October. Um, we were gathered, a group of little sisters gathered together for meetings and uh, on the Sunday evening, uh, that was the day we had gathered, a day of prayer we were having together before starting our meetings on the Monday morning. And at nine o'clock, on the nine o'clock news, the news of the um, famine in Ethiopia Broke. Dawn, and as the sun breaks through the piercing chill of night on the plain outside Coram, it lights up a biblical famine, now in the 20th century. This place, say workers here, is the closest thing to hell on earth. following morning, while Ethiopia was not on our agenda, it was very quickly on the agenda, and uh, I must say there was a buzz, it was like a hive of activity in the room that morning. And somebody... Um, posed the question, well, what, what can we do about the famine in Ethiopia? And we came up with three ideas. Uh, one was prayer, um, another was uh, the possibility of sending money, and the third one was to find out what were the causes of famine, that we felt this was very important. Um, and some wise sister at the back of the room said, well, we're nearly all nurses here, why can't we go? And the atmosphere was absolutely electric. 
So from that on, telephone was hopping, and um, we're just trying to find out ways and means of going. And many, many uh, phone calls made to different organisations. But uh, it took some time before it was organised that three sisters would go. Many of the sisters immediately volunteered to go, and by Christmas, three nuns were sent. Jacintha O'Sullivan, who now lives and works in Ballyman Flats in Dublin, was one of them. I was one of the sisters that volunteered, and I was told very shortly afterwards I was accepted by the province to go with Sister Mary McAuliffe and Sister Theresa Marr. Um, we were a few weeks waiting for our visas, and finally they came, and we left in December the 23rd, 84. Um, a lot of people found it difficult that we were leaving just Christmas Eve, the day before Christmas Eve, but we were happy to go at that stage um, because it, the needs seemed to be so great in Ethiopia at the time. We arrived in Addis Ababa and we knew from the beginning that our, the name of the place we were going to was Adigrat in Tigray. And after getting our papers cleared in Addis Ababa, we went after one week to Mekele. And we spent another week in Mekele, and while there, we helped in the camps with the Daughters of Charity uh, in Mekele. Um, there, I suppose, we had our first experience of what was really happening. Um, so many people dying of starvation. The camp situation was something terrible for us to witness. And I would say that all three of us felt very overwhelmed by the whole um, enormous situation facing the people of Ethiopia and all the volunteers. Marion, myself and Teresa, all we could see was teeming people. I'll never forget the day we went to the camps, which was the following day. And I suppose it was something um, similar to what I could say to a scene, I would imagine, out of hell or something. Like there were just rows and rows of white camps, thousands of people, literally little children um, having lost their parents, looking so lost. I will never forget the children's faces. And um, there were 80 dying a day that time. As we walked through the camps, um, it was just so normal. It became so normal to see just people carrying their dead. And just it, there were just there were no such thing as, as coffins. There was a huge mass graves or a grave or mass graves. And um, you would just pass by and there would be the mourners on either side of you. There would be children looking totally lost. And um, when you'd go into the, cli the clinic, in the, the camp clinics, there were set up a number of camp clinics. Um, there, were just, there was just plastic on the floor in, the, in dead heat, um, a straw mat for each patient. And there was a real stench of sickness and the bodies decaying and diseases of all types. Never, I'd never seen them. We were very shocked, but I suppose to some extent it was not different to what we'd seen in television before we left for Ethiopia. But it's one thing seeing it on the television screen, it's another thing actually being in the situation and experiencing the, 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 the real plight of the mm. people, which was really real for them, and it certainly was real for us at this stage. I suppose I felt very overwhelmed by the whole in situations it smelled so much of death and 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 sorrow and people crying 
um, people reaching out to to the foreigners looking for help. In other words, I found the people, even at that moment, and much later in my experience as well, people who who really trusted that something could happen and save them even at this late hour. And I think the fact that people were coming in, it raised their hopes. And those that had um, the ability to to help us even, they were there to show us how to help them. I was also struck by anyone that had any little strength left was helping their, their families and their their neighbours and their people. When we left Ireland, our, we had decided we were going for one year as um, relief workers. And um, But when we when we arrived in Edigra, already in Mechley, we were picking up that there was a different expectation of us. That, that I think it may have... We don't know to this day how lines became crossed. Perhaps it, it happened because three sisters went together that somehow or other a false impression was given that we were coming to make a permanent foundation in Ethiopia. And this was a tremendous shock to us and a great surprise. And uh, we kind of felt very uneasy about it at the beginning. And uh, it was further compounded when we arrived in Edigrat when we met um, a white father um, Father Kevin O'Manny, he told us that the bishop had got some virgin land for us in a place called Edikahamus and that we could open up our clinic and our convent and our schools there. It was like a, a visual shock um, because when I saw the brown red mountains and there were vast stretches of them and it, it was like a giant marble cake and it was just brown and red and brown and red and it was up and down and the houses on the mountains were just you could hardly distinguish them from the mountain they were the same color the stone was the same color the roofs were made were made of clay a nod place you would see galvanized roofs and they were glinting in the sun and you could know there was a house there but that to me coming from the plains of kildare and the green grass of Ireland was a severe shock to the eyes. I recall clearly the day we went out, the three of us, with um, Abuna Kadani, the bishop-elect at the time, and Father Kevin O'Mani, the white father from Edigrat. And um, somehow or other the people had heard through probably great, the grapevine that the International Red Cross was going to come into their area. And they thought, in fact, because we were white people when we arrived, that we were the International Red Cross, and they just teemed around us. I will never forget that experience. It's, it seemed that millions of people seemed to be coming around us and um, holding up their babies and pleading for help. And we had nothing that day with us. We only went out to see the area. And because we were white-faced, we gave them a sense of hope. And they thought wrongly at the time that we were in the International Red Cross. And um, we found that day extremely frightening and I think it made a, an indelible mark on the three of us. Um, it also I think sealed um, our kind of question, yeah we would go and help there because we saw the needs were so great and that there was nobody there. I arrived on a Sunday, the very next morning was Monday morning and the clinic was open and I just uh, started into work with uh, Sister Jacinta who was also there at the time she had arrived ahead of me and with the our Ethiopian assistants who are working there with us and um, 
I simply started seeing the people, meeting the people, and the uh, assistants who work with us, of course, work as interpreters as well, and they were interpreting the language. And from that day to this, I had been simply working. Well, my first stay in um, in Edegahamas was for 16 months. I stayed until 86, April 86. And I could see towards the end of 85 and the beginning of 86, the situation was improving for the people um, because there was a fairly good harvest that autumn, so the first harvest they had in years, and it gave the people a great sense of hope again. Also, the relief supplies and the relief um, operation was working rather smoothly at that time. I mean, by the end, by June of that year of 85, the International Red Cross had come in into our area. Also, um, MSF Belgium, Medicines on Frontier, had also come into our area. And these were also great signs of hope. And all these um, organisations, were we were all working very well together. And I certainly saw an improvement by 85 and, and early 86. The sisters did stay, and by 1986 had made a 10-year commitment to the people of Tigray. Trokra, the Catholic Development Agency, responded to a request for help. Joe Feeney. Trokra has been involved with Ethiopia since our organisation was set up in 1973. And when the Little Sisters of the Assumption went into Tigray in 1985, we decided to assist their nutrition programme. We recognised that it was a very important programme in the context of what was happening in Tigray at the time. The famine had got extremely serious. We were working in other parts of the country and supporting other groups within Tigray, but recognised that a huge amount needed to be done. We we appreciated the work of the Little Sisters of the Assumption because they went into an area which was perhaps the worst affected area in the whole country and we allocated approximately £60,000 since the Little Sisters went there in spring 1985. Sister Maureen Dunn had been one of the first sisters to volunteer and had been disappointed not to go immediately. So when Mary McAuliffe returned after one year, Maureen headed out and quickly settled into life at the clinic. We shared the life of the people in their primitive way of life, we certainly were able to share a certain amount of their, their lifestyle. And uh, I must say I enjoy that immensely. Being with the people? Being with the people and sharing their primitive way of life. Um, for example, every morning at 7 o'clock, our first task of the day was to go to a local stream um, where we got our supply of water for the day. And when we went down to the stream with buckets... Uh, the women were there washing the clothes, the cattle were in it, the children were playing in it, and that was the water. We, that was our water supply for the day. Got that back up to the clinic and we had to filter it and boil it before use. Um, so you, you, you had to think twice before using, at least you would use the water for several things. Uh, we couldn't cope with the number of people coming to the clinic each morning, right through the year. Um, to me, that was the hardest thing of our of each day was going outside the compound each morning and choosing from people that had been sitting there sometimes from the night before all through the night or from daybreak having walked three four five six days barefooted through the mountains carrying a child on their back no food nothing to drink and uh, the people lifting up their children pleading with us to take them and not being able to take everybody every day that was 
very, very difficult. The way I coped with that was um, I did my best for the people that came to me and that I treated each day. And I gave of myself and there was nothing more I could do. If I was to think, well, have they food for their journey home? How long is it going to take them? Are they going to make it? I don't think I would have been able to survive. I suppose what I found most difficult was uh, the morning that a child of two and a half died in my arms just because of whooping cough and it shouldn't have happened and um, that was a very sad day for me. It was, it was very sad I must say I found that really really hard and um, other things I suppose I found difficult were um, not being able to treat. I had a young man of 22 he had walked 10 hours with his wife and young baby. Um, he'd had an eye injury. And I knew the minute I, I looked at his eye, there's no way I'm going to cope with this. And I had to refer him. And I knew also that unless he got to um, where I was referring to him pretty quickly, that he would, have, he would lose the sight of the eye. And that's actually what happened. But he came back. He journeyed back three days on foot just to thank me for my care and concern and just said, he said, Sister, until, until the time that you came, he said, nobody cared about our eyes, nobody. And it did something to me that a young man like that could come back with his wife and child and say thanks, even though he had lost the sight of the eye, but he knew I cared. And the people did know we cared for them and that we did our best for them. It wasn't all successful, but we did our best. And they knew we loved them. And I think that was, that to me is more important than medicines, is the love that we were able to give and the love that we received from those people. between the Tigrinyan Liberation Army and the Ethiopian government had been there long before the sisters went out, but by 1988 the war came centre stage, as Sister Mary Malone discovered when she went to Tigray. At the beginning of 1988, this whole situation changed very abruptly. Uh, in February of that year was when um, the rebels appeared to be advancing and advancing into, in towards the towns that were controlled by the government. And uh, since we live in a small village at Agahamus, uh, it is between, it is 25 kilometres south of Adigrat, which is a very main town, and it's about um, 100 kilometres north of Makale, which is the capital city, capital town. And um, the rebels came into that village in February 88. They had quite a battle with the army um, on, on the night of the... 17th of February and the following morning was when they took um, six white people as captives out of the area and that included um, two of our sisters, a concerned doctor who was working with us at the time and three of the Belgian medical team who were also working nearby. Um, Sister Jacinta and Sister Bernadette were the ones who, who were taken by the rebels at that time. I suppose one of our greatest concerns at the time we were kidnapped was how worrying about our families and um, also the sisters in Ireland whom we knew would be very concerned about us. So on about the third day of our 
kidnapping days, um, I remember turning to one of the TPLF who was responsible for us at the time, and he could speak and understand English, and I was, got particularly upset, and I said to him that um, if anything happened to my mother, he would be responsible for it. And I really told him that um, you know, he could be the cause of her death if we weren't released very soon. And um, I remember he, that evening he, he was particularly concerned for me and he tried to assure me that um, he would do all we c he could to bring that to the leaders and see what could be done about it. And I would say my weeping, crying experience that moment, maybe uh, plus the power of prayer, brought about our release. Because they were, we, we had no fear for our safety with them, but we knew our families in the sisters' home didn't know that. They, they, wouldn't be, they wouldn't have been as sure of that as we were. All, our biggest worry was the long trek to Sudan and the weeks it would take and being out of contact and people not knowing what was happening to us. At that time we didn't know it had hit the media, but that was our greatest fear. And we kept on telling the TPLF leaders with us not to put it on the radio because we didn't want people at home to know about it. It was only after our release we realised how um, widespread the news had become in such a short time. Well. We were released on a Monday, and by Friday I was able to get to Addis Ababa uh, with the help of the relief plane, which was still flying at the time. And there was a battle in February, and that had cut communication with the north, so there was no way we could phone for Mekele or Asmara at the time. So I actually had to go to Addis Ababa to phone Mummy and to tell her that I was OK. And, of course, her first response was, come home. It's not safe there anymore. You have to come home. So I assured her I'd come home when I could. But it was good to speak with them on the phone to assure them I was well and I was okay. The war escalated and what happened was um, the rebels were um, taking more control of the government, previously government-controlled towns, and um, the government began to retreat out of the area. And not alone was the army retreating, but the government offices were closed down. Another thing that happened was... Um, an announcement was given by the government that um, this area was now a war zone and they declared martial law and said they would launch a big military offensive against the rebels and that um, all the international relief agencies, foreign and local, must withdraw from the area because it was a war zone. And I assure you that was quite a frightening time for us. And we didn't know what really was to become of ourselves. We got no um, direct order as missionaries to get out of this area but um, and we discussed it with the local bishop uh, etc and um, since we were not referred to directly and since we were not um, considered a relief agency in the same way as International Red Cross and the foreign medical teams but that we had um, been inserted there as part of the Ethiopian Catholic Church we were part of a local structure that was part and parcel of the place and thus that was not uh, going to move around anywhere. So we remained where we were and tried our best to continue to serve the people. We, we talked about it and it, it happened, it was a difficult decision to make, but all sisters and priests decided to stay. But all the other foreign relief had to leave and they only had two weeks to leave. And another real difficult moment for us was when we saw we said goodbye to our colleagues, the MSF and um, the International Red Cross, all leaving. That was a real moment of, of, of sadness for us and a real sense of isolation, being very much alone at that stage. 
and um, that was a very difficult moment as well. Much more difficult, really, than the kidnapping. In the end, you know, maybe we blocked out the painful side of it and remember most the joy of coming back to the people and the sense of, of at least that may be for me. There were many heavy battles, heavy fighting throughout 1988, and there was kind of sporadic bombing, but really the bombing was, generally speaking, targeted on the rebels or uh, wherever they were moving or wherever the fighting was. Uh, never in any situation were we or um, civilian populations a direct target. Um, uh, just that the, every time the, the, the bombers would um, roar through the sky over our heads, it was, it was just a, a menacing, terrorising experience. And always um, we would crouch inside and always our concern would be to keep the patients who are waiting for treatment to get them indoors so that a crowd of people would not be seen at any place. That might be a target at, at, any, at any time, a grouping of people, because it might be considered to be a meeting of the front. Always the rebels were the, were the target. Um, and always uh, the people would get a fright and we would get a fright and wonder where are they going today? Where is it happening today? And that, in that sense, it was always um, a frightening experience. We're totally alone, just three of us, um, totally cut off, no movement, whatever. Um, there was any bit of movement that there was was at, at dusk or dawn, which was very, very rare. Um, we were getting very worried about our um, medical supplies, but it was extraordinary. Any time our supplies went down, almost nothing, something would turn up. Somebody would arrive with a small supply. So we never, never really ran out totally, either with medicines or food. Um, we were never really hungry. Everyone had, had a, a sort of, had something personal to deal with. And for me, the personal thing to deal with was Am, am I going to stay alive here? Um, or, or are we in physical danger with this war? And if we stay living in this war zone? And certainly my first thought was, why don't we move out of here, move away to the countryside, or move away south of this, of the border of Tigray, and shift out of the war zone? Be there, because maybe the people will migrate if the war intensifies and maybe we should be there to take care of them if they come in great numbers like that beyond the, the border, or else be alive after the war to still care for the people. That was my first thought. It was flight, really, and, and survival were, were my initial feelings. And, um, but when we discussed with the bishop and discussed with each other, and um, we had to look at you know our commitment there, and. I can only give you the, the witness of my own experience, and it was that my life as a sister in religion is offered to God, is given to God, and that is really the meaning of commitment. And if God wants to accept my life one day at a time, if I keep on working, if I keep on caring for people, serving people and serving my God in my life in that way, that is how God is accepting my gift. If he wants to accept it in one moment, if the bombers strike our place, so be it. It is still received by God. And it was only when I really had the grace to accept that situation, that that is the bottom line, 
when it uh, when it comes to it. Um, it was then I had peace and I was able to accept to stay in that place, to to accept that my life is in the hands of God and there is no need to run from the fighting or from the war and I can stay here, I can care for the people, I can live from day to day and that is the meaning of my life. On the parchment-coloured hillsides of Tigray, the famine has come again. They ran out of food here five months ago. Their harvest failed entirely and they'll not have another until the end of next year. A million people in these mountains are starving. <laughs> Beyond the reach of the outside world this time, it's happening again. Children wasting away in their parents' arms, sinking into sickness and exhaustion. There's no international aid agencies here now to treat these children. They were ordered out by the government before the rebels took over and have not dared to return. Today, the only foreigners left are the Catholic missionaries who refuse to leave and carry on as best they can. Michael Burke's reports in 84 forced the world to wake up to what was happening in Ethiopia. Five years later, the horrific cycle begins again. The old suffer even more than the young. Sister Mary Malone treats them all. This little girl, Amethe, her mother died at birth. And her, her mother died from TB. <coughs> and she is... You can see her. She is now being cared for by her grandmother. Is she Amethe? What? And, uh, She's still looking she very... She is still very malnourished. Look we at are, the inside of the... Uh, we have... You can you can see how um, how wasted her thigh muscles are, but it is a long road to recovery for this child, and she needs drugs for one year as well as food continually because she hasn't had mother's breast milk done birth. But you're talking about needing supplementary food and needing yes. drugs. Yes. But you're running out of this. Both. The child that we are looking at in this picture, um, he was oh, he was on the BBC uh, television program before Christmas, and um, I was describing this child to Michael Burke. He is the one who was also injured the previous year in the bombing of Housian, and his penis was cut in half. Um, that has healed now and uh, is okay, but um, his whole body is starved and he is severely malnourished. Now, when he first attended our centre, his um, weight was 51% um, weight for length. That is, he had metabolised almost half his body weight. And um, he has, in the picture you see now, he has improved to 53%. It is a very slight improvement, but he has even improved from the condition he was in on his first attendance. And there's another little girl here who was also in the BBC film. Her name is Berhan. She's 11 years beautiful. of age. She's a very beautiful child. Her legs and arms are skin and bone. She has TB also. And at the time of her attendance, we had run out of TB drugs. We were not able to treat her. And um, the difficulty was to get uh, drugs into the area. I sincerely hope we have got them in by now since the movement of... Um, of relief supplies into Tigray but at that time we didn't have them and we just tried to support her with a small amount of supplementary food to try to keep her uh, well enough until she could commence her treatment. Her mother has to carry her on her back for six hours from her home to the centre for treatment and back again and uh, 
even though the child is so thin, she is 11 years of age, she is too weak to stand or walk herself, and hence the mother has to carry her on her back. And the child over here is the one in the condition uh, called Quashiorker, and he was not fortunate enough to survive. He was, <coughs> his skin was like tissue paper. It is so brittle, it is ready to break all over, and his body was completely bloated with fluid. His upper arm, you will see, is very thin. The, the skin on his abdomen is loose and baggy, and um, it's just his face and legs that are bloated with fluid. And this child, you see in the picture, it was his third visit, and he didn't live after that day. He had attended every day. At the moment, we estimate that about 30,000 tonnes per month is needed for Tigre and 30,000 tonnes per month is needed for Eritrea. Of that 60,000 tonnes that is needed per month, we reckon that at the moment we're only getting in 20,000, about a third of what is actually needed. Now that it's all but sealed off by the war, there is only one way into Tigray, long, rough and dangerous. The trucks can only travel at night. In daylight, government MiG fighters bomb everything that moves, even relief lorries. They'd rather their people starved than let up on the violence of war. Tigray was left, you may say, almost completely abandoned. Um, the rebels were in control and they have a local um, organization called REST, which is a relief organization. And this organization is trying its level best to coordinate and cooperate with the church groups that are also still present in the area to, um, to bring the aid to the people who need it and to distribute it there. And fortunately, a small amount of that is happening now not at all adequate but a small amount is happening and the government have agreed to allow some food to move into that area from the southern route from the port of Asab. Um, I am hoping also that medical supplies are moving in that way. We had run dangerously low in most things before I came home and there are just two sisters um, there now while I am away and they are still trying to work, they are still trying to care for the people and um, I know that their food supply that they had this um, powdered milk and high-protein food for the malnourished children and indeed for adults um, is completely exhausted already since about the end of February. They have had no more. And I, we have not heard yet if the food that has moved in from the southern route, if any of it has reached up to Adagahamus yet, to the clinic there. So I imagine at this moment the situation is extremely sad the sisters will be seeing the people arriving very, very ill, weak and collapsing even and dying before them. And they will have very little to prevent that happening. Well, the sisters are really quite isolated there and they are dependent on somebody who is coming in from relief organizations are uh, reporters who visit the area and that is how they have sent out letters um, in recent times and indeed how we have sent out letters for the past two years was generally speaking uh, with uh, visitors 
who came into the area and who came via Sudan. Um, occasionally we were able to send letters to be posted in Asmara that meant uh, a distance of more than 200 kilometres and we would be depending on somebody walking there to bring the letters to post. For me it was one of the most difficult situ- most difficult experiences in Ethiopia was the isolation. Um, I always found it difficult when I couldn't make contact or be in contact with people that I loved at home and months would go by when we'd, we'd be waiting for mail to come but somehow or other, it, it, it came, and we, we have no postal address where we live now. We have to use an Asmara address. So our mail really comes to us by hand, by somebody coming the way, along the way, maybe over 200 kilometres. But the day that mail comes, it is a real day of joy, and, and, and uh, it cuts the isolation that we're experiencing. Oh, it certainly changed my life, I would say completely. Um, for me, the year I spent there was really one of, it gave me new life and new energy um, a lot of joy and also a lot of sorrow because of um, I suppose not being able to cope with the sufferings of the people there because um, we just didn't have sufficient medicines or personnel um, to cater for them I suppose um, I, I suppose since I came home I felt somewhat divided because um, I have kept very much in touch with what's happening in Ethiopia and in Etikahamas, where our sisters are. And even since I came home, I know that the situation has further deteriorated because while I said to you that the army returned at the end of June in '87, I mean, last year, it, the province is now under the control of the TPLF entirely. So that leaves our sisters much more isolated. When I arrived back, um, a niece of mine... We knew I loved chocolate, <laughs> and we didn't have much chocolate out there. She had this big, big bar of chocolate all wrapped up for me. And uh, I opened it and very carefully folded the paper that it was wrapped in. And that night, when we were going to bed, my sister came along and just picked up the paper and threw it in the waste paper basket. I reacted terribly. She said, oh, don't do that. It was because that piece of paper would have made so many little bags for um, paper bags to hold medicines in that everything is just so, so precious out there that uh, Claire Champion that they'd send me out uh, when it would arrive every now and again, that was used for... Um, just We made up little bags uh, for the tablets. Um, so in things like that, I, I, and water, I, I mean, I'd be... I think twice about. I wouldn't leave a tap running. Um, and the same with food. I wasn't able to um, partake of an awful lot of food. It was quite a big party for me when I came home, and uh, I sat with a, a cup in my hand for the night, sipping, while others enjoyed the party. Um, I wasn't able. I just wasn't able to take it. Uh, I think you get you get used to having little, and can do with little. And um, I think this is something that, uh, it was a good lesson for me too. It's good to feel hunger now and again. Well, somewhere I feel drawn back. I, what I feel about it for myself is that I feel that the Lord somehow or other lured me in there. I just volunteered to go, but I had no idea what I was taking on. And somehow I, f- I feel that, still that, that constant drawing back to the people. And... Um, I suppose really I have grown to love the people of Ethiopia and um, I'm willing to 
to be with them maybe a bit further in their suffering and hoping that we can create a new future for them. I find that our work is basically the same everywhere, that we're caring for the poor, um, trying to live close to the poor. And uh, it has given me, I think, a greater love for the poor and underprivileged. My experience is that I have gained so much from these people, the people of Ethiopia, and I'm experiencing the very same here now, which is a great joy to me, because, um, well, I wouldn't have seen it like that as, as clearly before, but I do now, and I'm grateful for that. My exit visa from Ethiopia will last until July of this year, so I must get back in before it expires. And uh, I look forward to going back. Um, I feel a great bond with the people, as I've told you already. They're a very beautiful people and a very gentle people. And to be perfectly honest, um, I went there thinking that I had something to offer. And perhaps we have a little to offer. But always um, people find, and I have certainly found, I have received more than I have given. learned and received from the people's way of life, from their attitudes to life, from their culture and uh, their religion and it has, um, it has added to my life and it has, has shown me um, an, another, another dimension and um, a very beautiful way of life and a very peaceful, <laughs> despite war and everything else, a very peaceful um, inner attitude. Um, that, that it is very difficult for us in our busy consumer world to reach. And I have learned and, and imbibed uh, this attitude and way of life in Ethiopia, and perhaps it is part of why I am very happy to return again. Mm -hmm.